Amen. It is good to see you, GPC Church family. And for guests who are joining us or folks watching us online, uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We're answering the larger question is of, of what is the church, the church according to Scripture. And in the Sermon on the Mount, each week, we're seeing that Jesus is defining righteousness and the kind of character that we're supposed to have as a part of His church, as the people of His church. And last week, if you were with us, we heard Jesus say something like this, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that anyone who has hated his brother, who has had disdain for someone in the image of God, is guilty of murder. And today, we're going to have the same experience as Jesus talks about righteousness and sexuality. So, right out of the gate, let me admit, um, I have for 18 years spoken messages like these to rooms filled with college students. I realize that's not what I'm doing today. I I have people all over the range of age and life experience. However, I do intend to say and read what God's Word says and to show the beauty of redeemed and righteous sexuality that we all only wish we could attain to. And the reality of sinful sexuality and the hurt that it brings, not only to us and our lives and our families, but to our Heavenly Father. So all that to say, this is a weighty subject. I know that it is. Um, I trust that what I say will not be misunderstood. I've prayed for that all week long. Uh, But turn your attention now to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. A very short passage, but perhaps a very long sermon. Jesus said to his disciples, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's pray that God would give us the grace and mercy that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge this morning as we begin that this is a subject of much pain, much sadness, much disappointment, even guilt, shame, and regret. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would be our great physician and that you would bring gospel balm to hurting people. We pray not to pick at healed wounds, but to apply true balm to all hurt. And we ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've heard the idiom, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And you know that that idiom quite simply means to go from a bad situation to a harder or even worse circumstance. And as Jesus is teaching His disciples, that's essentially the kind of dynamic and feel that's happening here. 
You know, he said last week in our passage, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder, but I say to you, and then today, of course, he says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, and in both instances, he's showing his people that, well, that makes me guilty. That makes me a murderer. That makes me an adulterer. And Jesus is doing that intentionally. Let me say this very loudly and very clearly on what is such a difficult subject. Until you hear the badness of the bad news, you will never know your need for the goodness of the good news. If you think murderers are those people out there, or that adulterers are those people out there, Jesus is teaching through his ministry to the disciples to say, You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a fallen sinner. You've broken the image of God. You need everything I'm about to do for you in my death and resurrection. And so this morning, none of us gets off the hook because Jesus would have no part of that. Until you hear the badness of the bad news, you'll never know the goodness of the good news. You'll try to tilt the stick and say, I measure up, if you heard the sermon last week. And so this morning, I have so much to say, and that's why I gave a handout. I think they're all gone. The content will be on the screen, and I will send you a handout um, by PDF if you would like one. But listen to this. I have seven points, and they average three sub-points. So that's 21 sub-points plus seven points. That's 28 things I want to say. I have six quotes. I have countless texts. So I shouldn't be wasting any more time right now. (laughs) Point number one, please track with me as best you can. Number one, sex is a priority according to Scripture. Sex is a priority according to Scripture. It has been that way since the beginning, since creation. That's why I say it's a priority. We're only a few sentences into the Bible, the book of Genesis, before sexuality and marriage takes center stage. In that way, sex is a priority, and it's always been a priority. Remember, God created it. God created it good. And so it is true that sex is a priority. It is the covenantal knitting and cleaving of a man and his wife. And who would have ever thought it would be controversial in a culture to say that? That it's for man and his lone singular wife. Everything outside of the church is going to pick at that and chew at that and try to unravel it. But God's Word, let's be very clear, says sex is for one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. And sexuality is to knit them together. It's to cleave them together. It's a good thing intended by God. It's a beautiful thing. It's procreative. And it's to be mutually edifying. It's not for one of the two partners. It's for both partners. They're mutual edification. And then thirdly, it's to be guiltless and shameless. In our reflection that we read from Genesis, we heard that the man and the woman were both naked and they had no shame. Intentional language. Sex was intended by God, created by God, to be guiltless and shameless. In Genesis, from the beginning, as a priority. Of course, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know we make it to Genesis chapter 3 before we see the ruin and the fall of man. 
And now everything will be tainted by sin. Nothing escapes the ruin of sin. And of course, sexuality, if it's a priority in the kingdom of God, if it's special to God, it's going to be especially ruined and painful, hurtful of people. So think about that this week. Second point, sex is powerful according to human experience. Sex is powerful. Those of you who know J.R.R. Tolkien may know that he wrote a letter to his sons. And this is the first quote. Listen to how Tolkien would advise his sons by written letter. This is a fallen world. The dislocation of the sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. The devil is endlessly ingenious, and sex is his favorite subject. He is capable of using our romantic and tender moments as well as our baser and more animal-like ones. He's precisely right. He understands Genesis 3 and the fall, that it's affected human sexuality, and he wants his sons to know this. That as you go out into the world, you need to know that's target number one in your own sinful heart. And don't fall prey to the devil and the world and their schemes. That's good advice because sex is powerful. It's powerful. It can dominate our thoughts and our attention. The Bible's filled with examples of characters, pretty much always negative, about how these truths are seen, how it can dominate our thoughts and attention. It can own our hearts. Consider King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. You remember David, his experience, his adulterous experience with Bathsheba. And there in 2 Samuel, we're told that one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he looked down and he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. David is sleepless in the middle of the night, walking around. The sun has fallen, and he sees, and what he sees dominates his mind. It dominates his heart, and the appetite of sexuality overcomes him. And as king with power to command men, he misuses that power to take another man's wife. So politics and sexuality has always been an issue. And of course, you know it's all in the news. People using their power and using that to try to quench an appetite that will never be quenched. And so we see that sexuality is powerful. It can dominate a person, their thoughts and their attention. It's also able to influence our decisions and our actions. Sexuality can affect the way that we think and whether or not we compromise God's Word and His principles. Samson in the Old Testament is an example of this. Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there 
a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. And you see a man here being dominated by physical appearance, sexuality, wanting this woman regardless of God's Word and what he had been instructed to do. So sexuality is powerful. And many of you know exactly what I mean. It can dominate the thoughts of your heart and your mind. And you even know that it can divide and destroy people and nations. It can divide families. It can break relationships. It can lead literally to warfare in the world. And so sex is powerful. Thirdly, and I'm not having to convince you of much so far, sex is pervasive in our culture. It's everywhere. Sexuality, this great gift of God from Genesis, it's been commercialized by the world as a way of making profit, selling things, alluring uh, shoppers, garnering attention, doing whatever it can be used, being harnessed to make money for man in his never-ending hunger for money. And so sex is pervasive. I mean, just, just think. TV shows, commercials, movies, and now internet streaming and personal devices that make sex readily available instantly. Not only that, but music. Music is harnessing sexuality. Almost any genre of music, I should say. It's not just the new music the kids are listening to, right? You can go back and listen to almost any era and any genre, unless it's just classical music with no words. But I'm sure there could be an argument made there that some of that is sexual in nature. But any genre of any era, anywhere in the world, sexuality is connected to music, and music seeks to harness it. And not just music, but artwork. Fine art, as well as the graffiti written on the side of the bridge. Sexual images, sexual words. Sex is pervasive in our culture, whether high culture or low culture. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. Think about that. The appetite of man is being harnessed for man's Gain and the evil one is having a heyday with it. Matt Walsh, who's a Christian writer, in his article, The Four Ways to Hurt Your Wife and Your Marriage, says this It's definitely not an easy time to be a virtuous man. Everywhere we look, there are images on display purposefully trying to grab our attention and send us into a spiral of lust and sexual greed. You can't even scroll down a Facebook news feed or an online news site 
without seeing blatant or borderline pornography. The entire world, it seems, is out to exploit our promiscuous sexual appetites. It's easy to give in, and it's hard to resist. But we have to fight it. We owe ourselves that much. And more importantly, we owe our wives that much. Pornography is adultery. Porn will hurt your marriage and even your future marriage guaranteed. And now the room feels a little bit more awkward. But you have to agree. What Jesus says is that if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. You're an adulterer. And in a culture where we are bombarded with every version and perversion of sexuality, who can say that they are clean, that they are untouched by sin as Jesus has defined it to His disciples? Sex is pervasive around our culture everywhere we go. As one author said, Satan is so clever, he always baits the hook and camouflages the trap. And that is true in a culture that is dominated, where sex is pervasive, where it's commercialized. And then fourthly, because it has to be true, sex is perverted in a sinful world. Everything our world would say and contribute to the subject of sexuality is going to in some way be perverted from its origin and from its purpose. Some good-sounding advice, some good-sounding uh, recommendations can be perverted if it's not biblical. Think of how sex has been perverted in our sinful world. How lust has been promoted Extramarital affairs abound. Premarital encounters with sexuality abound. And since those both lack covenant, they are unfaithful, untrue versions of sexuality. They are perversions of sexuality. And of course, the same is true as has already been said about pornography and how rampant it is in our culture. Prostitution, and now trafficking. The taking of vulnerable populations and individuals, harnessing them for commercialized reasons to play off of sexuality and profit. And it's all perverted. It's all ruined, horrible abuses of God's good gifts. It's everywhere around us. And it's as bad as it sounds. Tim Keller says this, Sin is first and foremost a disorder of the heart. It therefore directly influences our sexuality. Sin ensures that our passions and desires for sex are distorted. Instead of being life-giving and self-giving, the sinful heart wants to use sex for self-serving reasons. That is why God has given us necessary rules regarding sex in the Bible to inform us how to use it in the right 
way. Do you hear what he's saying? If you have a sinful heart, and you do, your practice with sexuality is going to be off-center. It's going to skew from righteousness. You're going to have harnessed it for your own selfish purposes, which is not what it was given for. Those are perversions of true biblical sexuality. And so, fifthly, sex has prohibitions for our good. Now, we tend to hear rules or prohibitions as bad things. But let's remember, it's the rules and prohibitions of traffic laws that keep us from all running into each other out there, right? Rules, boundaries, prohibitions from the one who knows what he's doing should be received by us as good news and not as bad news. Because perverted sex is destructive to its participants. And that's what the Lord would not have for His people and for His church. If you pervert sex, you are going to harm yourself. You're going to harm others. And there is no pretending otherwise. Perverted sexuality is any sexual activity that is outside of a covenant context. That's how the Bible defines it. If you want in simplest terms... What are the prohibitions for sexuality? It's that it's for one man, one woman, in the context of holy marriage until death ends the relationship. That's how the Bible would define it. That's pretty narrow, but it's pretty good when it's practiced the way God would have His people do it. It becomes a blessing. Perverted sexuality ultimately enslaves its participants, while marital sex, biblical sex, liberates its participants. Now, that's a big statement. Rob Rayburn says this. I think it's extremely helpful summary of this. He says, sex is a mysterious wonder, a great gift of God, and something He has invested with mighty power. It is ours to enjoy to the fullest extent, but it is also ours to steward, to protect, and to use as God intended, like all His other great gifts to us. When it is so used, as in marital sex, that is loving and romantic and selfless, men and women find what a wonderful mystery it is. But when it is misused... It destroys individual lives, marriages, families, and even whole societies. That's a pretty bold statement. But I think that it's true. Nothing has more power to integrate a couple together in marriage. And nothing has greater power to disintegrate people outside of the covenant of marriage than human sexuality. Think of that. Dwell on that. God made it to be the glue of marriage that binds people together. And outside of marriage, it disintegrates human beings. They collapse. They fall apart. Their relationships collapse. So says the living God. Sixthly, and maybe this should sound a little bit more positive from here on. Sex is a privilege and a good gift of God. Amen? 
Sex is a good gift of God, and it's a privileged gift that he did not have to give. He says it is to be pleasurable and satisfying. He said that. Pleasurable and satisfying. And he said, I'll say again, it is to be exclusive for man and wife. Instead of me putting it in words, let's read what Scripture itself says about this. If you should wince, remember these are the words of God. These are not my words. This is what the Lord's given us in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. So if you think that the Bible's view of sex is just all negative and, and downcast, well, let this reorient your understanding of what God has said is true. Proverbs chapter 5. Drink water from your own cistern. There's a wink there, by the way. He's not talking about water. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow into the streets? Your streams of water into the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? You see what the writer of the proverb is saying? Is marvel over God's good gift of sexuality in a covenantal marriage and drink of it deeply to the glory of God. And that's right, sexuality can be for the glory of God. That's what he has said. That's the vision he's given us. So why talk about this? I mean, it would have been a whole lot more comfortable to... We could have talked about something historic and academic today, and it wouldn't have been so hot and sweaty up here for me. <laughs> wondering, what, what are they thinking of me right now? If we don't talk about biblical sexuality... If our children don't hear about biblical sexuality in the church, where are they going to hear it? They're not going to bump into it on the internet. And so I unashamedly want to plant that flag of sexuality to the glory of God as the vision and passion for every one of us. Single, married, whatever the status. Particularly for our young children. If they don't hear a biblical version from us, and in your homes from you. Well, the world, you need to know, the world's working 24-7 to paint a different vision of sexuality than what they just heard in the last 20 minutes. Sex is a privilege. It is a good gift of God. Lauren Winter, in her book, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity, says this. The bottom line is this. God created sex for marriage. It is impossible within a Christian frame of thought to defend sex outside of marriage. To some, this may sound like old-fashioned hooey, but it is the simple truth. And to that I would say amen. 
Boy, the world says that's old-fashioned hooey. Oh, that's how grandma and granddaddy would have thought. We've moved far beyond that. But we would say what Scripture says is our only hope for ever understanding a subject so powerful as sexuality. And then lastly, sex is to be preserved as holy to the Lord. My practice with sexuality, your practice with sexuality, should be to preserve it as holy to the Lord. And that's where the sermon comes to a beautiful conclusion. Because Jesus says in His words to the disciples, you've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, a man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in the heart. And in that way, every one of us, male, female, we are adulterers who have not righteously been able to handle sexuality. The inclinations of our hearts and mind condemn us. But as we heard last week, what hope do we have when our hearts condemn us? Is that God's grace is greater than our hearts. That He shows a mercy to sinners who will look to Him in faith. Some of you are familiar with Rosaria Butterfield. I won't comment on her long uh, history. Beautiful history of redemption out of perverted sexuality into pursuing biblical sexuality. But I'll share this one little quote on this subject for all of us. She says, There are a million ways that we shatter the image of God, but there is only one way to restore it. And I would apply that to us in this way. There's a million different ways in which sexuality has been perverted and misused and abused by all of us. But there's only one way for it to be restored. And that's in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The person and the work of Jesus. There's a million ways you and I have gotten this all wrong. There's one way to get it right. And the beauty of having the Lord's Supper today, for the first time I think since February, I believe since February, that may have been wrong, um, we get to bring this issue to the table. Every one of us. We get to bring the million different ways that we've broken and violated the perfection of God's law and His righteous standard. And they all come to one final conclusion. One ultimate remedy. One ultimate hope in the person of Jesus. His broken body. His poured out blood. We're going to sing in a minute from Psalm 130, which we've heard earlier in the service. Uh, Martin Luther actually took this version of, or these words of Psalm 130 and put them into song. And it's the hymn that you know from the depths of woe. But I chose this because of this subject that we're talking about and how every one of us, we've broken the image a million different ways. But there's a line in there that we'll sing that says this If thou iniquities didst mark our secret sins, and misdeeds dark, who shall stand before thee? 
And if you've sung that and never known what it means, he's simply saying this, Lord, if you kept a record of the ways that I've broken your perfect law, even the secret things nobody knows about, the things done in the dark, who can stand before a holy God? Who can stand before a righteous living Lord? No one. None of us. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So if you've walked around for any length of time, short or long, because you felt like you're bearing guilt, maybe for something in your distant past, maybe for something in your not-so-distant past, it's time to unload that guilt. It's time to unload the shame and the regret. And the way that you do that is you bring it to Jesus and you put it on the table and you walk away from it. And this morning, we get to literally do that by coming forward and taking our COVID version of bread and wine. And the Lord says, this is how Christians deal with sin, guilt, shame, and regret. We believe that there's an exchange of death. He was put to death for our sins, and we bring Him our sins and confess them, and He puts the power of them, the guilt of them, the shame and regret of them, He puts them to death once and for all. So don't not bring your guilt, shame, and regret to Jesus. We all have it. That's the whole point of Jesus raising the bar of righteousness with His disciples, is to get everyone to realize, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner. You know, that's why Jesus, it's said of Jesus that He's the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. Every man must trip over Him. That's why Jesus would say to His disciples, you know, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The idea is it's impossible. It's why He said to them, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say if you've ever been angry or called someone a fool or had disdain in your heart for them, you're a murderer. He said it so that everyone would know they don't get off the hook. And now He's ramped it up with sexuality and said the same thing. Just so you don't think that you can get off the hook. If you've even looked, had lustful thoughts or inclination in your heart, you're an adulterer. And so Jesus is the stone we must all trip over. We have to know the bad news in order to embrace the good news. So bring your guilt, bring your shame, bring your regret, bring your sins to Jesus and exchange them. Let Him put them to death knowing He was put to death for us. Let's pray and then we'll sing and then we'll come to the table. Oh Lord, who can stand before You? Who is righteous? Who has kept Your perfect law? No one but Jesus. And so Lord, we confess our sins to You and we receive that assurance of pardon by faith. That we don't have to walk around defeated and discouraged. We can walk around as the redeemed and renewed people of God. The church who never gets it right, who fails continually, but who is pardoned and forgiven and given hope. So Lord, would you now bless us? Even as we sing these words, would you work them into our heart like a balm of the gospel to our own deep wounds? We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name.
Amen.